Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason, welcome back to the Duocast, man. Glad to be here, Brian. Yeah, so what'd you think of the BJ Thomas episode? It's a very good episode, man. Uh, BJ Thomas, I... You know, I listened to some more BJ Thomas. I had, I'd never sat down and actually listened to some of his work, like as far as his body of work. I realized that I've heard a lot more BJ Thomas in my life than I thought I had. Um, the guy's a legend. I just, I, I'm impressed. I have a lot of respect for him and he seems like such a great guy. You know, when I did the, the deep dive, like I always do with my guests before I talk to them, deep dive into his history, into his music, I could not help but be impressed by just the scope and the breadth of his body of work, I kind of thought of B.J. Thomas as a country artist. Yeah. Uh, kind of pop, kind of country. And then you realize he's got this entire gospel catalog. And I'm not a gospel guy. I don't, I don't listen to gospel music. But you look at his imprint on the gospel music world and the fact that he went platinum and was the first gospel artist to go platinum and kind of elevate that genre of music to where it became almost like pop music in its popularity. Mm-hmm. I was just immensely impressed. And another thing I, I really enjoyed about the BJ Thomas interview was how personable the guy was. He is so modest and humble. And he really, he asked questions of me. I mean, he was, he was connecting with me on various levels. Number one, you know, we both grew up in the same area. I was, well, at least I spent time in Houston as a teenager. And he grew up in Houston, but also our fathers struggled with addiction and anybody who grows up around addiction, you know, it really is a formative experience uh, for, for good or bad. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a connection that you feel with other people who grow up in that environment. And um, but he, you could tell that he connected with me on that level and I connected with him, but yeah, I, I'm with you on the body of music is so impressive and to have one number one hit is pretty amazing but to have eight number one hits and 26 top 10 hits and five grammys and grammy hall of fame <laughs> grand old opry and you you look at all of this this history of tonight show with johnny carson and ed sullivan this guy is a living legend oh yeah i appreciated his honesty he was very honest with his um his addiction talking about it talking about it, how it affected his wife, his family, the people around him. And I just felt that his story was very honest. And I really appreciate that about somebody like that that's willing to open up and tell their story. It's not easy to do. Yeah, it was really cool to get to know BJ. And like I say, a lot of times when I when I come away from these interviews, maybe this is just me projecting, but I really do feel like BJ and I are now like, we're, we're not Facebook buddies or anything, you know, messaging each other and texting each other. But I feel like I have a friend in BJ Thomas because of that, that connection we made. Oh yeah. And it's just nice to be able to, and especially in an environment like this, in a global pandemic where we're isolating so much, to be able to talk to someone like BJ, learn so much about the entertainment industry and the challenges of being an artist and a performing artist, and then coming away from that conversation feeling like, you know, this just wasn't a transactional thing. Right. Like, I'm doing something for him. He's doing something for me. This was like, you know, I felt close to him after that interview. And um, 
that's that's a pretty cool thing. It's like sitting down and talking to a parent or a grandparent. You know, they're telling their story and you know, giving you some insight into their history, their past. Yeah, and uh, you know, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, Jason, is I I got a message a couple weeks ago actually about our conversation about Joan Jett. Okay, and this happened during a recap uh, where we were talking about the Joan Jett documentary and and our take on what Joan Jett meant to rock and roll and rock and roll history. Right, right. This listener sent me a message and said, do you find the comments about Joan Jett in the little snippet of your conversation with Jason to sound a bit chauvinist? Hmm. I am thinking of the comments, quote, not trying to be feminine, end quote, and could, quote, stand up to any male rock band, end quote. Am I being picky? Because I know what you mean but with varying degrees of femininity, should one suppose she wasn't? She bucked traditional slash conservative views of femininity, possibly. And would she not just stand up to any rocker out there? Why male? I suspect because they were the ones doing it like that at that time. But on a snippet, it sounds a bit bad. Again, I know what you mean, but I just wanted to let you know that came to mind for me. I have noticed plenty of those comparisons over the years and they have always bugged me a little. So a bit of a pet peeve for me. Just thought you'd like to know. Hmm. Anyway, I, I wanted to bring that up because I think what I was trying to say, and maybe I put this inarticulately or inartfully, was that Joan Jett broke into a very male-dominated industry and held her own very well. And I think the way I described it made it sound chauvinist, and maybe it was chauvinist or sexist in the way I described it, because, you know, perhaps rock and roll shouldn't be described in male versus female or masculine versus feminine terms. Right. Uh, maybe it should be described without using those adjectives and uh, leaving that out. It's just a matter of whether her music holds up or it doesn't, or it held up at the time or it didn't, or it stacked up against all of the other great rock music that was coming out at the time, or it didn't. But I appreciate hearing from folks about how we talk about these things, because I know that for, for men, especially white men like you and I, there's a learning curve for how we talk about issues like feminism or femininity, masculinity, sexism, the Me Too movement, equality issues. And so it's really actually, it's nice to hear critique from listeners because it shows that people care. Right. And they, they care enough to want us to get it right. And so that's why I'm bringing it up with you now. I think you're right. I don't think we were purposely trying to be chauvinistic or sexist. I think what I meant was at the time, even during the runaways period when she was with the runaways, there was a bit of a struggle to try to get in and be taken seriously in the record industry because you got to think of all the bands that were that were on top at the time. You know, you're competing with bands like, well, in their in their case, probably the Ramones. But in in terms of popular music, they're going up against bands like Van Halen, Kiss, Styx. I mean, that is some hard competition out there, and it is a competition because you got, you want to be able to get in, make records, sell records, sell concert tickets and gain a fan following. And I think that it was a very hard thing for them to do because a lot of people in the industry and a lot of people in radio didn't take them seriously. They tried to sexualize them. And Joan Jett is somebody that I think said, you know what? Fuck that. 
It doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter. I can rock. I guess what I mean is Joan Jett, along with her manager, which, you know, thank goodness she had that guy behind her because he stuck with her and he's still with her. And he's the one that got her the record deals that she needed, got her promoted the way she needed to be promoted. And her job was to go out there and deliver the goods. And she did. The Blackhearts, her band, one of the best bands in the 1980s, as far as I'm concerned, definitely held her own. Yeah, very well said, Jason. Uh, I, I think where I got in trouble in trying to talk about it the way you did, but not so artfully, is I said in the recap that she wasn't trying to be feminine. Mm. And, I, and I think what you just said really is a better description for what she did in the industry, which was she didn't fall into the trap of letting her managers and letting the industry overly sexualize her because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And so when I said she wasn't trying to be feminine, I guess maybe what I was trying to say is she wasn't falling into that trap, which is, hey, you're a woman and the only way to make it in this industry is to be this sex goddess who is going to bring in listeners and fans because you're you're like a supermodel. And she wasn't. She was she just cared about the music mm -hmm. and the rock and roll. And she was such a hard-rocking person that you really didn't think of her as, oh, this is a female rock and roll band. You just thought of her as, this is just a rock and roll band. And that's so, I think that's what I mean by she held her own and her music and her performances really stacked up against all the other rock bands in the, in the industry, male or female. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. You know, another thing I wanted to bring up is... Um, the death of Chadwick Boseman. Oh, yeah. Tragic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, we, we reviewed his movie, Defy Bloods, last month or the month before on one of our recaps. And at the time when we were talking about that movie, I had no idea, and I don't think really anybody outside of his inner circle knew that Chadwick was battling cancer at the time, colon cancer, mm -hmm. and had been since, I think, 2016. And also, I didn't realize when we were reviewing the movie, Defy Bloods, which is on Netflix, I didn't realize that Chadwick, who played Storm and Norman on that movie, uh, was also the Black Panther. Oh, yeah. And T'Challa, you know, the, the character T'Challa, Black Panther in the Black Panther movie. I mean, this, this is just a testament to what a chameleon he was in the movie industry. But man, the guy was just so eclectic and had such a filmography you know, Defy Bloods, of course, uh, the Avengers movies, Endgame, Infinity War, you know, Black Panther, Thurgood Marshall, Get On Up, play James Brown. I mean, play Jackie Robinson on 42. That's right. It's like this guy was a, a force in the movie industry. He sure was. And to struggle with this type of existential crisis, which is colon cancer, advanced stage, going through all of this treatment, and yet filming, not telling anybody, not trying to, you know, I, I would assume that he's just trying to keep this struggle to himself and keep it private and not bring everybody into it because it is a private struggle and, and, a, and a private challenge. But to, um, to keep it this quiet for that long is just amazing and admirable and sad. And I don't know, man, it, just, it someone that young to, to lose a, a battle with cancer who has made such an impact on the world. And I've seen a lot of his, um, a lot of YouTube videos on Chadwick 
and what he did for children who were fans of Black Panther and, and how he, oh, yeah. he gave back to his fans it was really touching. I never, you know, never thought I would connect with Chadwick in this way. But when you find out about losing him and then also the impact that he had on the world and you realize, you know, this is a young guy, it really makes you think about your own mortality and also the impact that we're making, you know, what kind of, what kind of impact are we making right now? What are we doing to make a difference in the world? Mm -hmm. And so I, I just wanted to bring that up and get your thoughts on, on his loss. Well, I didn't even realize until you, you told me that he was Storm and Norman in Defy Bloods. I look back on it now and I'm like, yeah. And, uh, I didn't realize he had such a body of work. You know, I didn't realize he had made so many movies. He was so young. And just to, um, for, to anybody like that at that age to lose somebody that early to colon cancer is just such a tragedy. Cancer is such a selfish bitch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know you lost your dad to cancer. I did. I lost my grandpa to cancer. Um, I've lost relatives, you know, and friends from, from cancer. So it's a real thing. It's scary. My, my, my wife has had breast cancer. So it's, it's not picky. It'll take anybody. You know, another thing I wanted to, to mention and recommend to you, Jason, uh, and also to my listeners is uh, a show that I have watched, I just finished it on Netflix. It's called Love on the Spectrum. Hmm. And uh, this is a, a series. It's a five-part series out of Australia, I believe. And it features folks who are on the autism spectrum who are looking to connect romantically with um, with other folks and date and get into the dating scene and hopefully find love and commitment. And uh, I, I started watching this on vacation with my family this week. And I, you know, I, I don't recommend a lot of things on Netflix. I think there's just so much content out there and you know, everybody's got their, their Netflix queue or their Hulu queue or their HBO you know, series that they watch. But mm -hmm. man, this is really something special. I love on the spectrum. And it was so touching to see a film crew go in and talk to folks who are not really featured in popular culture these days. Right. Folks that are maybe, maybe have a, a mild form of autism or Asperger's syndrome, or maybe they're moderately or severely disabled because of those um, disorders. Maybe it's not appropriate to call it disorder. I don't know. I'll probably get in trouble with the <laughs> listeners again talking about this, but you know, it's, it's really, it's such a special series because it's short, you know, it doesn't drag out over 10 or 15 or 20 episodes. It's five episodes, but you really get to know these young people. They're in their late teens to uh, early to mid twenties. And they're people that have, for the most part, have never been on a date in their life. And, and so they have coaches who help them with the conversation and the banter that you're supposed to you know, be familiar with when you're going into a date, so you kind of know what questions to ask. And so they're being coached on this and you get to see this happening. And then you actually go out on the date with the, the folks who are in this show. And, and uh, it's, it's so touching and funny and also sad. And, you know, there's scenes that will make you just laugh hysterically and, and other scenes that will bring a tear to your eye. I, I highly recommend Love on the Spectrum and, um, you know, maybe one of these days I can connect with the filmmakers who put that together because 
I'd like to know how they came up with that idea and also the challenges that were involved in, in putting that project together. It sounds like an interesting series. I'm, I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, I think Odessa would really like it. Yeah, I, I think she's mentioned it before, actually. So, yeah, that might be something to check out for sure. So what do we have coming up next, Jason? Uh, we have an interview with Tommy Abalone. Ah, yeah, Tommy. That was a fun interview. I That was an interesting way that that unfolded. But you and I, if you remember, we had a recap where we talked about Tommy's documentary, The Bill Murray Stories, which is on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we had just watched this and talked about how much we enjoyed the film. And uh, I was posting, I think, an audiogram on Instagram about it. You know, I was like, you know what I should do? I should tag the director in this post mm -hmm. just so he knows we're talking about his film. And, and so I did. And then I connected with him on LinkedIn and uh, messaged him and, and just asked him. I was like, you know what? I, I should probably ask him to be on the show. And he agreed to talk to us. So nice. just a couple of weeks ago, we recorded this interview and uh, talked about the Bill Murray stories and ghost heads and other projects that he's working on. He's actually, he's doing a documentary on the band Gore. Do you remember oh, Gore? Oh yeah, Gore. Oh my God. Oh my God. He is actually working. <laughs> that is in progress right now. And for folks who don't know who Gore is, just Google it. And it's, it's kind of hilarious and, um, impressive at the same time because Gore is a band that's uh that very it's like a cosplay band that's it's metal and uh there's all kinds of like sci-fi monsters that they're dressing up as i it's it's hard to describe oh it's crazy but tommy is taking this this project on with um some pretty impressive producers and uh we'll talk about it during the interview and you'll hear about it during the interview coming up next sounds good I can't wait to see that, actually. Um, um, I wasn't a huge Guar fan, but I do remember seeing them before. The costumes are just ridiculous, and, and the music is insane. I mean, those guys, that was quite a show. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting to talk to Tommy about the Bill Murray stories, even though that documentary is a couple of years old now. I think it came out in 2018. Mm -hmm. it's, it's still, I think, his most fascinating piece of work to date. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. And it's also the most philosophical that he's been involved in, um, you know, kind of talking about the, the philosophy or the Zen of Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. So we got into that a little bit and we talked about his other projects, but I just, I, I, I really like talking to documentary filmmakers because these are the guys that are in this industry, making films, telling stories, but they're, they're doing it for the pure passion of storytelling. They're, they're not like chasing these uh, dreams of becoming A-list directors, even though I'm sure Tommy would love to direct a narrative film one of these days or produce a narrative film. But they just are in it for the love of the story and also finding the story. And that's what's so impressive about documentary filmmakers is to find the story that is out there. You have to have your ear to the ground. You have to be creative. And you have to talk to the right folks and know how to talk to the right folks. And that's what the Bill Murray stories, in my opinion, did so impressively, which is talking to the, all of the people who have been in his orbit, been in, in Bill Murray's orbit. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. And, and, and figuring out how to tell their version of events of how that story unfolded for them mm -hmm. and what Bill Murray meant to them and how he entered their lives and so mysteriously but so profoundly and how it impacted them. 
So that was a lot of fun to talk to Tommy, and I'm looking forward to hearing what listeners have to say about it. So speaking of documentaries, uh, do you want to tell the listeners about the bonus episode you got coming out on Friday? Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, we, we are going to be putting out a bonus episode, the replay, actually, of my interview with Jeff Orlowski. He's a documentary filmmaker who did a, a few documentaries um, on environmental disaster, which is global warming. And he did uh, Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice, Emmy-nominated guy. But his most recent documentary that we talked the most about during our interview at Sundance this year is called The Social Dilemma. Mm. And um, the reason I'm replaying that interview on Friday is that on the 9th, it will be launching on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. So it'll be available to stream for anybody who has a Netflix account. And I really enjoyed this film. I took my photographer, Tanner, with me to see it. He, he's a lot younger than I am. And, and I think it affected him in ways that it did not affect me. Um, I looked at it a little differently than he did. But he, as a young man, has a different worldview on social media and has kind of grown up with nothing but social media around him. And so I think he's more affected by social media than folks like you and I are, Jason, mm -hmm. in, in a negative way. And I think he sees it in his peers as well. But we watched this movie together at Sundance. And um, I, I was wondering when it was going to come out, what platform it was going to be on. And I just got an email from his film crew that it is being released on the 9th on Netflix. And so I wanted to commemorate that with the bonus episode, which is the interview with Jeff Orlowski. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, it's great, man. You're, you're going to like it. And I, if you can watch it with your kids, too. If you could sit down and uh, watch it with them, maybe get their thoughts on it and see what they think about it. That would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, get their point of view on it. It's a good idea. Well, Jason, uh, it's been good connecting with you, man. Uh, hope to see you on the next duo cast, maybe in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Love talking to you, man. I love being on this thing. It's fun. All right, brother. Have a good weekend. You too, Brian. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>